Father, we thank you for this time. We thank you for the promise, the hope, the events of Easter. Let them become real to us this morning. Whether we are, we are coming as an insider, one who has celebrated many, many Easter's, who are firmly convinced of the events recorded in this gospel, or whether we are looking in from the outside, not yet convinced that Jesus is exactly who he says he is. Lord, would you walk into our lives just as you do with Thomas? Would you step into our doubts, into our fears, into our skepticism, into our sin? And would you show us just what you showed Thomas, great compassion? Father, let us walk together this morning through this passage and let Jesus be revealed to us in a fresh way. We pray in the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. There's a lot of articles that uh, are written in Easter week, and they often get celebrities to write what they think of Easter. And one of the best that I read this week was from Ricky Gervais. He's the comedian. He's also an atheist. And he wrote an article entitled, Why I Am a Good Christian. He says, I am, of course, not a good Christian in the sense that I believe that Jesus was half man, half God, but I do believe that I'm a good Christian compared to a lot of other Christians. It's not that I don't believe that the teachings of Jesus wouldn't make this a better world if they were followed. It's just that they rarely are followed. Gandhi summed it up this way. He said, I like your Christ. I do not like your Christians. Your Christians are so unlike your Christ. He goes on to say, so many Christians think that because they believe in the right God, that they are automatically good and have a one-way ticket to everlasting life. Dare I say, I suspect that this is their main reason for believing. Jesus was a man, he says. And if you forget all of that rubbish about being half God and believe in the non-supernatural acts of Jesus, acts accredited to him, he was a man whose wise words many other men would still follow. His message was usually one of forgiveness and kindness. These are wonderful virtues, but I have seen them discarded by so many God-fearers whenever it suits them. They cherry-pick from their rule book, basically. I have seen such cruelty and prejudice performed in the name of Christianity. And he goes on to say, God or not, if I could change one thing for a better world, it would be for all mankind to adhere to this little gem. Let he who is without sin cast the first stone. And I assure you, no more stones would ever be thrown. So maybe we should go back to the basics and find out where it all got confused. Maybe we should go back to the basics. What did happen? What were the events that surrounded Jesus' death signifying? Were they real? Can we trust in the historicity? Can we trust that is the picture of Jesus that is embedded there? I love Ricky Gervais. He's wickedly funny. Uh, And he's expressing some very common skepticism. First of all, prove it. Can Can you show me? Can you prove to me? Can you document the fact that Jesus is who he says he is, not kind of someone that claimed to be half God and half man, but that he really is who he says he was? Very much like Thomas. I want cold, hard facts. Let me touch Jesus. Then I will believe. It's actually very modernistic, very Cartesian in its demands. But on the other hand, what Gervais is asking for and what Thomas seems to be struggling with is that he'd been around Jesus for quite some time. He'd seen the miracles. He was not 
uh, disbelieving in the facts and the historicity of Jesus. He was not disbelieving that Jesus was who he said he was. What was his struggle? Thomas was disappointed. Thomas had been led to believe that peace is coming. He had been led to believe that if he follows Jesus, that shalom will come, that the kingdom will come, and that his friend will be near him. And even though he was prepared to go to, the, to Jesus' death, somehow that death rearranged his faith. It scrambled what he believed to be true about Jesus. His friend had left him. He was disappointed. He knew that Jesus wasn't a religious huckster, but he was disappointed that his faith had not led him to the peace, to the hope, to the satisfaction that he thought it would. Now we're going to look briefly at three things that this passage brings out about Easter, about faith. The agony of Easter, the impossibility of Easter, and the triumph of Easter. First of all, the agony. What does it mean to believe? What does it mean to follow Jesus in a broken world where things seem to fall apart all the time? Six times Jesus says in this passage, believe, believe in me. This passage is not simply for those who are unconvinced and skeptical. It's not just for those who are outside the faith, because Thomas is an insider, and yet Jesus says to him, Thomas, believe. Stop doubting and believe. In Jesus' life, resurrection came only three days later, but in our real lives, resurrection can sometimes take weeks, months, years before we see Jesus is at work in my life in spite of these terrible circumstances. Sometimes he doesn't appear to walk into our lives like he does in this passage with Thomas. Your parents have divorced. You've lost your job. Your spouse has been unfaithful. The one you love no longer loves you in return. We should all understand Thomas's demands. It's not that we disbelieve the whole thing. It's, Jesus, where are you when I'm hurting? You've promised peace, and yet my life is anything but. Why have you abandoned me? Thomas is saying, you tell me Jesus has risen from the dead, but my life is in turmoil. Thomas has left the disciples. He's isolating himself. He's lonely and fearful, and he's rejecting the testimony of his closest friends that Jesus has arisen. Tell me he's not struggling with faith. Tell me he's not struggling with unbelief. And many of us, if we're Christians sitting right here in this church, struggle with unbelief day in and day out. He's saying, tell me, show me, explain how this resurrection changes anything at all in my real life. Thomas, you see, has missed an important event. In fact, the most important event He's seen Good Friday, but he's missed Easter. He's seen Jesus go to the grave, but he's missed the resurrection. Annie Lamont is a a writer and an essayist who is also a devoted follower of Christ, and she says that her attitude towards Easter was changed by one comment that a friend of hers made. She was shopping with this friend who had terminal cancer, only a few weeks to live. And her friend is in a wheelchair, and Annie Lamont is in a store, and she's trying on dresses because she wants to really impress this one male 
friend who has an interest in her. And so she goes into the dressing room, and she comes back, and her friend's sitting here dying in the wheelchair, and Annie says, do my hips look big in this? (laughs) And her friend says, you know, Annie, you don't have time for that. You don't have time for that. If you're a Christian, do you ever think, have I missed something? Jesus was raised from the dead, and yet my life still seems quite messed up. What happens when we get to that point? We realize that our hopes in Jesus are not matching up with our lived lives. We go in either two ways most of the time. We either go frustrated and we stagnate in our spiritual journey. We just stop. We stop caring. We throw up the white flag. We may kind of have this resonance with Christian theology, but we've stagnated. Or we fill our lives up with distractions, like looking good in a dress, like attracting someone, like bringing a relationship into our lives that will make us feel significance. And all of this is done to mask a deeper fear, a deeper unsettledness. Our lives become like Potemkin villages. You know what those are? Those are the houses that the Russian minister is supposedly to have erected when Catherine II came to visit his province. And he builds these houses, but they're just shells. But if he can escort her through the center of town with people standing through, it'll look like things are going well in his domain. But they're just facades. They're just shells of houses. There's no life going on within those houses. Here we have a very loyal disciple. It says other places that he was willing, he told the other disciples, let's go to Jerusalem so that we can die with Jesus. He's very loyal, but he's determined now not to be duped, not to be taken in by this religious enthusiasm that the other disciples have. He's more dubious. And then Jesus walks in probably smiling, saying, Peace be with you, Thomas. Just as he's told the other disciples a week earlier, he comes in and says, Peace be with you. This should sort of baffle us, and it certainly baffled Thomas. What sort of person are we dealing with here? What sort of story are we reading when we read this gospel? What kind of man is this? This person is the the Jesus that just three days ago was sent to the cross. Everyone saw him die, and now he's here. He's appeared again and brings peace. He says, come and touch my hand. Put your finger, put your hand in my side. This isn't a ghost. This isn't an imposter. This isn't an apparition. It's someone that you can touch. It's someone that still eats. It's someone that still can give you an embrace. It's someone that can still speak to you. He's part of this world in very significant ways. But then this world that he embodies, this world that he lives in, seems to deviate from the normal course of our world. He seems to be both part of this world and part of a different world altogether. He's unrecognizable to some of his best friends. He walks through locked doors. Did you get that? The doors are locked because all of his disciples are fearful that the Pharisees are going to come and take them to the cross. So they lock the doors, but Jesus walks right through. He comes and goes as though he belongs both in our world and in another world altogether. 
One commentator said, if this is fiction, it's the oddest fiction ever written. Because Jesus is coming and proclaiming peace, but peace with scars. He's coming and proclaiming a deep and abiding hope, but it's a hope in a broken world. It's not hope that comes when you relieve yourself from bad circumstances. It's a hope that can be found in the midst of them. It's very different than anything else. And then notice, notice Thomas's response, or Jesus' response to Thomas. He's been one of Jesus' closest followers, willing to go to death with Jesus. He shouldn't be thrown off by this. Has not Jesus told them over and over, this is what has to happen? Follow me to Jerusalem? And yet he's left the other disciples, and he's flailing around in lonely isolation and introspectiveness. He won't believe. He's skeptical. And what does Jesus do? Does he come in anger? Does he come and say, Thomas, get over yourself. Pick yourself up. Come on, you've betrayed me. No. He comes and says, Thomas, peace be to you. Touch my hands. Put your hand in my side. Thomas, in other words, I understand this is not what you expected. I understand you've been living between Good Friday, and you haven't seen Easter. I understand how that is disconcerting. And whether you are a skeptical outsider or a committed insider, this should be so comforting to all of us because what Jesus does when we have doubts, when we come to him with skepticism, when we come to him with our guard up and our complaints in place, Jesus doesn't say, well, come back when you're better. Come back when you've got it figured all out. Come back when you're a true believer. He says, no, put your hand and touch where my nails are. He says, reach your hand into my side. I am here for you. I have stepped into your world, and I continue to step into your world. And yes, it's somewhat confusing. There's an agony of faith. There's an agony of Easter and living between the time when Jesus has come and said, I am putting an end to death and suffering. I am putting the nail in the coffin of everything that is evil and destructive and oppressive about this world. And yet, our world still seems in disarray because though he has won that victory, he has not yet come back to fully consummate it. That, my friends, is the agony of Easter. And if you've taken hold of the promises, of, if you know what the Bible says, and it doesn't create any sense of, of dissonance in your mind as you live out your daily life, then you, you have a, a truly blessed life and an unusual life. This is the agony of Easter, is that we are called, the church is called, believers are called to place their faith in the promises of Jesus and reach toward his peace, but yet do so in a world that is still broken and in a life that is still often very unsatisfying. The agony of Easter seems to lead us to the impossibility of Easter, the impossibility of faith in this type of world, and it's why many walk away. No one gets it right off. In John's gospel, and all of the gospels for that matter, we see even his closest followers, those who should get it, they don't get it. They walk away. They say, no, Jesus, you can't be going to the cross. This can't be right. What John is saying is that the gospel is not obvious to everyone, it's not, and no one naturally sees it. 
No one naturally says, yeah, that makes sense. I want to be a part of that. In fact, Jesus has to come into someone's life and reveal it, give them faith. He has to announce it to them. He has to grant it to you and I to see what is going on. When you read the Gospels from our historical vantage point, and you see the disciples and you think, come on, don't you get it? Don't you see what's going to happen? Rejoice, don't walk away. But yet they argue with him about his death. How could this be? Mary goes to the tomb and, in, and uh, mistakes Jesus for a gardener. Where have you taken the body? Thomas here is despondent, has left the others, and even after being told that his closest friends had seen Jesus, he says, unless I see the nail marks in his hands and put my finger where the nails were and put my hand into his side, I will not believe. He's not here laying down conditions of faith, conditions of belief. If you can meet this challenge, then I will believe. He's not doing that. What he is saying is, you guys are loony. (laughs) He's incredulous, much like Ricky Gervais is. I will not believe this. This doesn't make sense. He's incredulous. And Thomas is challenged for not believing on the basis of the testimony of others. But Jesus says, blessed are those who believe without seeing. Now, how do we wrestle with this? Because We're asked to believe on the basis of eyewitnesses based on the account of things that were written down numbers of centuries ago. But you know what? We believe, you and I, all of us here, believe things on the basis of eyewitnesses every day. We can't go about our regular lives without an implicit trust in someone else's testimony, in this, go this way, go that way, do this. But we've been trained to distrust the eyewitnesses of the resurrection, the eyewitnesses of Jesus. And every Easter, we see academics that are brought onto camera that come down out of the ivory tower and say, you cannot believe this in the modern world. You mustn't believe this. This makes no sense. It came into a culture that was superstitious. It came into a religious culture. And you can't believe this anymore. People that make their livelihoods on the study of Jesus will say, do not believe in Jesus. And they would like for us to believe that they operate, they exist in the area of trustworthy neutrality, that they've looked at the facts objectively, they've read the historical evidence, and if you're objective like me, then you you must come to the same conclusions. Any other conclusions would be superstitious, and you're putting your faith in a very pre-modern culture. But what they are saying without saying it is put your faith in me. Distrust those eyewitnesses and trust me. But what we say and what we must remember is that there is no Archimedean point. There is no point of neutrality. There is no point where you can objectively assess the truth and the facts and the cold hard evidence. Everyone comes in with commitments, including the academics that are saying that we can no longer follow Easter. You have to put your trust in someone. And what we're doing as Christians is placing our trust in the truth, the truthfulness of the historical records. Thomas is making here what are very modernistic demands. Give me proof, give me evidence, give me documentation. But even for us, 
What constitutes proof is something that we have to argue about. What constitutes historical documentation is something that you have to prove. If you saw him, if you touched him, if you heard him and saw him visibly, would you believe? Would that change it for you? You see, really, it's not about that. It's not about evidence and documentation because Judas saw Jesus. He saw the miracles. He didn't disbelieve that Jesus was who he said he was. He didn't want to believe. He, un, he disbelieved because it was not the way that he wanted life to go. The Pharisees were very convinced that Lazarus had, had risen from the dead. But what was their response? It wasn't, oh, okay, now we believe it because we've, it's been proven to us. No, they wanted to kill him. Thomas's real issue here is not, are the facts right? It's not, can you prove it to me? Is it documented? The great poet W.H. Auden said, if a Christian is asked why Jesus and not Socrates or Buddha, Confucius or Muhammad, perhaps all he can say is none of the others arouse all sides of my being to cry, crucify him. You see, friends, there were many people that saw Jesus, that saw the miracles, that had no doubts about the historicity and the veracity of those miracles, and yet said, crucify him, because it's not how I want my life to go. It's not how we want the nation of Israel to go. This is not what I expected. It wasn't about proof. It was about life commitments. Almost everyone today, like Ricky Gervais in the article, has a very positive conception of Jesus. He's a great teacher. He's a good moral leader. Even business books have been written about doing business the Jesus way. We have a, a very positive but sort of unfactual and, and, and slightly off-base idea of who Jesus is. And, but certainly, his contemporaries understood exactly what he was saying. Thus, they wanted to crucify him. They didn't think, oh, well, he's a good teacher, and we're going to kind of pick from the moral buffet, the religious buffet, and we'll take Jesus for this, and we'll take Confucius for this. No, they knew exactly what Jesus was saying. Jesus was claiming to be the king of the world, the Messiah. They had no misconceptions about that, and therefore it led them to do away with him. Another artist who has written, or at least has been interviewed consistently on his Christian faith, is Bono, the lead singer of U2. And he's questioned, he says, uh, the interviewer says, Christ has his rank among the world's great thinkers, but son of God, isn't that a little far-fetched? And Bono says, no, it's not far-fetched to, to me at all. Look, the secular response to the Christ story always goes something like this. He was a great prophet, obviously a very interesting guy, had a lot to say along the lines of other great prophets, be they Elijah or Muhammad or Buddha or Confucius. But actually, Christ doesn't allow you to do that. He doesn't let you off that hook. Christ says, no, I'm not saying I'm a teacher. Don't call me teacher. I'm not saying I'm a prophet. I'm saying I'm the Messiah. I'm saying I am God incarnate. So what you're left with is either Christ was who he said he was, the Messiah, or a complete nutcase. 
I mean, we're talking about a nutcase on the level of Charles Manson. The idea that the entire course of civilization for over half the globe could have its fate changed and turned upside down by a nutcase, for me, that's far-fetched. All of us, not just those of us that are searching from the outside, and we are so glad you're here, all of us, insider, outsider, have to come to this realization that Jesus can have no significance in our lives. We can reject the story outright and say, no, that's not for me. He can have ultimate significance. We can say, yes, this is true, and I'm going to live my life by his teachings. I want him to rule over me. He can have no significance or he can have ultimate significance, but Jesus cannot have some significance. He doesn't open that possibility up. And we have to decide this morning, insider or outsider, both of us, we have to decide whether he's going to have no significance or ultimate significance, but we can't let him have some significance. We can't patronize Jesus in that way. What is the significance? What is this ultimate significance that Jesus is supposed to have? What does Jesus ask us to stake our lives on? This is finally the triumph of Easter. The agony, the impossibility, and finally the triumph of Easter. What is the significance? It's his promise of peace, of shalom, of blessedness to everyone who will call upon him. That's the triumph of Easter. Jesus enters the room and says, Peace be with all of you. Peace. And he says to Thomas, Put your finger here. See my hands. Reach out your hand and put it into my side. Stop doubting and believe. Peace be with you. Believe in me. Follow me. Ultimate significance. Give your life fully over to me. And then Thomas, the skeptic, the doubter, makes this phenomenal confession. And what John's gospel has been building up to from the very beginning, when John says in the opening passages of his gospel, Jesus, the Word, was with God and was God. And for the next 20 chapters, he's been building this case that Jesus is exactly who he claimed to be. That Jesus is not only fully man, but he is fully God. Not half man and half God like Ricky Gervais thinks about it, but he is fully God and fully man at the same time. And then Thomas, the doubter, the final confession of the character of Jesus comes from his lips. My Lord and my God. My Lord and my God. The Gospel of John doesn't mince words about who Jesus is. And he doesn't mince words about what his purpose is in writing. He says in verse 31, here's why I'm writing. You want to know why you should read my book? You want to know what my rhetorical point is? Do you want me to, you want to know what I'm driving at? Here's why I'm writing. So that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Messiah, the long-awaited one, the one who has existed from the foundations of the world and now comes to bring you peace. That's why I'm writing. The whole point of this letter And now he sums it up with Thomas, who also doesn't mince words, in verse 28, my Lord and my God. Jesus is the God who has made all things, who has existed from all eternity. Jesus is the the creator 
Jesus is the loving Savior that comes to rescue not just you from your sins and your, give you salvation, but rescue the entire world to set things to right, to create a new. That is what Thomas is saying. Not that he's a good guy, not that he's sort of divine, not that he's a great prophet, but that Jesus is God. And you know what Jesus does? Does Jesus say, oh, wait a minute, Thomas, let's, let's tone it down. People may get the wrong idea. Jesus doesn't say anything. He lets all the others gathered there draw that same conclusion. And by his silence is saying, you know what? You're right. You have confessed rightly. He is the God from all eternity. Now, what does it mean to believe this? To have faith in this Jesus? Let me summarize this way. In 2009, I watched two fantastic films. And those of you that know me will not be surprised that one of them was a Pixar film, and I was there on opening day to see it, and it was up. The other was an independent documentary that actually came out the year before, but I watched it in 2009, called Man on Wire. Now, in Up, we see an old man shackled to his last hope for happiness, his house. His wife has died, and his house has become his security. It's become the focus, the locus of his meaning. So he resists the developers' buyouts to come in and take his house so that they can put condos up. He says, no, no, no. He wants to simply die in this house. It's where he's made life. It's where he's lived with his wife. But one day he gets an idea, and it's a crazy idea, because he and his wife have been saving up for years to go to Paradise Falls, South America. This is his promised land, right? But he has a problem because he can't let go of his house. He's tethered to it. It's his sense of source of meaning. So instead of just buying a plane ticket and flying to Paradise Falls, he fills up thousands of helium balloons and turns his house into a big hot air balloon and flies to Paradise Falls. Now, when I saw this preview, I thought, there's no way this is going to work as a story. There's no way any kid is going to stick with this, and there's no way any adult is going to buy it. But I bought it. I loved it. And it turns out to be one of the great illustrations of how we desire to control life and how that desire leaves us overburdened. It leaves us overworked. It leaves us, leaves us constantly stretching ourselves, wanting for more, for more. If I can just get to this, if I can just get to Rainbow Falls, we all have a Rainbow Falls in our lives. And Mr. Fredrickson drags his house across the entire world until he finds something of more value that he can exchange his house for, that he can finally let go of the control that he is in his, that he has invested in this house. What are you carrying around? What houses are on your back? What are you willing to go to the edges of the earth to protect? It may be something very unmistakable and very obvious. People may have told you about it because they see it in your life. Or it may be something extraordinarily obscure and something that you have to actually dig around. But we're all staking our faith, our hope, in something or some things. Something is your ultimate. If I can only get to Paradise Falls, maybe it's control over your life, maybe it's your career, maybe it's recognition and achievement, maybe it's 
image that you're trying to protect the way that other people think about you and how they see you. Maybe it's political party, if only my party could win. Maybe it's your religious practices. If I will be noticed for my religious practices, then I will be significant. You know what your ultimate is whenever it's threatened. Whenever you see yourself getting extraordinarily angry, whenever you see yourself depressed, despondent, whenever you see yourself reacting irritably to other people, you know that that person is poking or stepping somewhere near your ultimate thing. That's how you discover what house you're willing to take to Paradise Falls, is you ask yourself, why am I getting irritated about this? Why am I angry about this? Why can I not let go of this thing? So what does it look like to exchange one ultimate for the other? Well, the second film was Man on Wire. And if you haven't seen the documentary or read the book that was basically a dramatization of this event, uh, it's the story of Philippe Petit, a Frenchman, who in 1974 strings high-tension cable between the Twin Towers and walks across it. It's called The Artistic Crime of the century. They hadn't even opened the tops of the buildings yet. He breaks in with his crew and somehow carries thousands of pounds of high-tension cable up 110 stories. Now, I've seen the movie and I've seen the film, and yet, and so I don't doubt that it didn't take place, even though it seems utterly unreal, even though it seems utterly incredulous that something like this could happen. I've seen the film, and I believe it happened somehow he manages to do it. And think about this. Once you get the cable up to the top floor, you can't simply just lasso it across because it weighs hundreds of pounds. The wind is whipping around, and the, you just can't throw it because it's 100 or so feet to the next building. Then, once it gets across there, and they have this ingenious way that they string it across, once it gets there, you have to get it incredibly tight to where it won't bow while he is out walking 110 floors up. But what happens when you put high-tension cable between two buildings that, that move, not in oxtep? If it, they move in the wrong way, it's going to snap that cable, he's going to fall, and the people on either sides are going to be sliced in half because when you pop high-tension cable, it goes backwards at hundreds of miles an hour. So that's what, it's, what he's up against. And yet, it happens. If someone was to tell you that and not bear eyewitness to, you, to it, you'd probably say, well, I want to see the film. <laughs> I want to see the documentation. Let me see proof that ha that happens because it seems so crazy. Now, I believe it, that it happened, but that's not faith. Faith would be if Philippe walked across and then maybe put something on his back to show that he could carry something else across back and forth between those towers. Faith would be if he then walked to the side and said, Hey, you, Brian, get on my shoulders and let me walk across with you on my shoulders. That would be an act of, of ultimate faith. That would be an act of me giving over my trust, my control of my life to him. I would have to trust that he was who he said he was, that he was very good at his craft, and that he would make it to the other side. And you know what? As much as I trusted that, as much as I'd seen him do it, I would be utterly petrified while I was on that wire with him. But the more that I stayed on top, the more that I was taken across back and forth, I would get more and more comfortable. Even when the high winds came and he began to shake, even when he maybe lost his balance, I would become more and more settled 
at letting him be the one that controlled my life at that moment. Friends, that's what biblical faith is. That's what the triumph of Easter does, is it says, I am trustworthy. I am worthy of you giving your life over to me. I don't take it to make your life boring and to change everything that you think is fun about life. I come to take your burdens away. I come to take your burdens and place them on myself. I come in my resurrection so that you can walk through life with something that is secure, something that is infinitely good, and not something that you are trying to grapple with to extract meaning that that thing was never meant to give. Jesus comes and he says, Blessed are those who believe without seeing. This is partially a rebuke to Thomas, but you know what it mostly is? It's a commendation for everyone that will come after, saying that you are the only crew, you are the only time frame that people will actually get to see me. But blessed are those who come after me, after you, and believe on the basis of your testimony. They too, just like you, can have peace, can have shalom, can have triumph in my resurrection. Friends, if you know him, if you're a Christian, take hold of that promise yet again this week and this morning. If you're here asking questions, take one step forward. Maybe it takes stepping out on that wire, and you're, you're fearful. You don't know what it's going to look like, but that's faith. That's what it means to trust Jesus. Would you take hold of him as we come and move to the table? Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this story. We thank you that you embed your eternal truths and stories that we can understand in narratives that we can relate to. And Father, all of us here at some level can relate to Thomas, either out of utter, outright disbelief or through years of following you where life just doesn't seem to go the way that we are thinking it should go. We all have elements of Thomas. Would you come and meet us? Would you come and meet us as we confess our faith and as we come to the table and as we conclude this worship service. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.